as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful book, Philippians. What did I say? Did I? Maybe it is time for this pastor to be pastor to be put out to pasture. Well, I'll be in Philippians too. I whatever I said, you might eventually catch up with me. And I'm not sure about you, but as we study this book, I just, it's like I, I, the more I study, the more we teach and learn it together. I just can't get enough of the, of the uh, teachings and the dynamics in this book that set forth for us the, um, some of the uh, wonderful realities of the Christian life and what it means to be focused on, on Christ-centered living, on gospel living, if you preferred, when Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. And as we come to chapter 2, we've moved into verse 12, which begins with a therefore... In, in, which ties it back to the previous context. It keeps the conversation going, doesn't it? This is, this is a summary statement in regards to what the, what the discussion has been about in this book. And we find that this, this dialogue in the first part of this book is centered around Paul's, Paul's statement in regards to the furtherance of the gospel in verse 12 of chapter 1, where Paul recognized that even his, his wrongful imprisonment is working out to further the gospel. And Paul was delighted in that, and he was excited about that. And, and though you and I might naturally look at a wrongful imprisonment as unfair and, you know, and, and, and pout and complain and protest, and Paul recognized that it was a sovereign hand of God that, that landed Paul in prison, which allowed Paul to reach the unreached, so to speak, in, in the, in the uh, city of Rome. And he, does, and he in, in doing so, in his discussing this, he puts life in the eternal perspective in that wonderful verse in verse 21 where it says, for to me to live is Christ, that all that matters. Wherever he has me, whatever condition I am, whatever state I'm in, the important thing is I serve Christ. And that's, that's the essence of life. And he p- gives us that perspective that we, ought, uh, that we ought to carry into life, isn't it? That we're not here for ourselves. We're not here to fulfill ourselves, to, 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 fin- to complete our bucket lists. We're here to complete God's bucket list, to accomplish his will, and to serve his purposes. And Paul says the essence of life is serving Christ in whatever state, condition, or situation I am in. And then in chapter, verse 27 of that chapter, he, he makes the application of the church. He says, here's how it's going for me. Here's what God has for me. Now for you, he says in verse 27 of chapter 1, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so he challenges the church at Philippi to strive together, to work together for the faith of the gospel, and lays that vision and that burden before, before the church. But as we've gone through this, we recognize as we get into chapter 2 that he, he says to accomplish this from a springboard of a healthy church family. He encourages us in chapter 2 in the beginning to serve in a spirit of unity of, of purpose and to minister to one another with a humble attitude of service towards one another. And then provides that divine example in verses 5 through 11 of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, here's how it's done. Here's your example. Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus. The one who was worthy of glory and praise and worship humbled himself in order to serve our needs their greatest need, which is that of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. And in that consideration, we realize, we were reminded that Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his Lord in John 13. And, he, and, and the mind we're to have is this mind of humble service, 
Kind of just the opposite of what much popular Christianity promotes today, which promotes a lot of self-fulfilling Christianity, a self-focused Christianity, where God is like a genie in a bottle to fulfill all your needs, wishes, and desires. What we find is just the opposite and when we consider the Scriptures, that we're here to do His will, and we actually end up finding the greatest reward when we do that. We find the greatest satisfaction when we say, not I, but Christ lives in me. And that's what Paul challenges the church to, how the church to live. To live not about me, but about being willing and available to be used of God in the life of others as we strive together in a unity of purpose to reach the lost for Christ. And then we come to chapter, verse 12, where he begins a more personal section. I think he moves from his example in chapter 1 to the church at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. And then I think he gets a little more personal here in verse 12. So let's read a few verses here, beginning in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And so we, we, we come here with this, therefore, this continuation of thought to my beloved. He addresses these dear Christians, and it's, it's always encouraging to see the heart of Paul when he addressed the people. You know, there's times when he, might have get, when he might have a tendency to be frustrated with people, to throw up his hands with people, to say, I just, you know, I give up on you type of thing, mentality. But you continually see Paul expressing the love of Christ in spite of the recipients. Instead, he sought to lift them up, to encourage them, and his desire for them was God's best, to know him and walk with him, to be, as it says later in this passage, to be blameless and with children of God, to be to be shining as lights in the world that, are, that is around us. And what he challenged you and I, too, as this gets personal today, is this idea of sincerity, isn't it? Or being unhypocritical, if we prefer to put it in that terms. Or if you want to put it and summarize it simply in today's jargon, you'd say, be real. That's kind of how we put it today, isn't it? Be real. Live your convictions. Be, be what you are in Christ. Because our identity as Christians is that we are in Christ. When we trust Christ as Savior, God places us into Christ. The Spirit of God joins us into one body in Christ. That's who we are. And though we have uh, sub-identities, you might say, you know, we're farmers, lawyers, and Indian chiefs and whatever, we're, we're ultimately unified around the standing that we have as one in Christ. That's our identity. And I think what he's saying here is to live, live that identity. Be real. Live consistently with what you believe, because we are very good at just the opposite, are we not? And he tells them here, as you have always obeyed, he says, first of all. And so he reaches back to their reputation. He says, you always obeyed. You have a reputation of seeking the Lord, of submitting, obeying, submitting to the things of God, applying God's word to your life. And maybe he says that, in light of Jesus' obedience back in verse 8, because he became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And so he highlights this idea of being submissive or obedient to the will of God, to the lordship of Christ in our lives. 
And he may have recognized the past realities concerning their obedience in the things of God and their willing response to the teaching they had received. But he says, but he, but he goes on to say, but now much more. It's time to be real. It's time to prove your faith, to let it, let it find shoe leather in your life. He says, much more in my absence. Well, we know that, you know, when we consider what we are, we may present one thing in public, but what we really are is what we are in private, isn't it? Before the Lord, that's what we really are. And we often try to disguise that and hide that. You know, it's, uh, I was having a discussion with someone recently about, you know, someone giving you a phone call early in the morning. Well, early in the morning has, uh, uh, is defined differently by different people. And so someone calls you early in the morning, what be considered, and they catch you in bed, you know, you try to sound awake, don't you? You're just like, hello, you know, you try to overcome it. You don't want, you don't want people to know that what you really are is, a, is a, one who sleeps in in the morning. You know, and, 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 and 7.30 might seem late to you, to the farmers, they've been at it for, for several hours by that time. And so you sound like you're awake. Hello. The problem is these days is we have a daughter who lives on the East Coast who's all ahead of us, and she likes to FaceTime. And it's hard to fake it when you're looking at a screen, when your hair's standing up like this, and, you know, it, it's just like you're exposed for what you really are. You're still in bed in the morning. You know, we are what we are in private, and the urgency here is to be consistent, to be real, to be unhypocritical. You know, and we, as much as we hate to admit it, much of Christianity is known today as being hypocritical, isn't it? That's how the world sees Christianity. That's how they view people. They don't really live what they believe. They say one thing and do another. You know, they, they get all emotional and worked up on a, on a Sunday morning, and then Monday morning it's a different life. And we know what he's, the Bible is saying here is that we're to live, live on Monday what we are taught and enjoyed on Sunday. That's kind of what it means, you know, when we're all by ourselves. And so we're really after the realities of the Christian life. And it's a really amazing how many, how often as Christians really fail to grasp the reality of the Christian life. Because it's more, Christian life is more than just going to church, keeping a few rules, obtaining a few events. The reality is, is, is to is found in this word of obeying, of submission to the word of God, of following it in our lives. The reality of believing it to be true for me. I just had a discussion with someone recently that real faith is not just believing God's word is true, but it's true for me to the extent that I will live in light of it even when it's a hard decision in life because life will always bring you to those crossroads. And if God is sovereign, we all know ultimately it's our, it's our God bringing us to crossroads, a decision in hard areas when our faith is going to be tested. Because we naturally have our way of doing things, and sometimes we learn God's word. It says, this is how God would have you view it. This is how God would have you, God would have you to do. And instead of justifying ourselves, we, 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 we need to come to the point where we obey, where we submit, where we say, okay, Lord. You know, and I believe... That it's, it's in those realities that our faith is really proven and developed and, and, and tested. And I don't mean just in the area of trials. We understand what it means to have our faith tested in trials. Are we going to trust the Lord when life turns upside down? That's one aspect of, of a test of our faith. But there's also the area of daily living. Day to day, some hard decisions, having godly priorities and perspectives, making decisions that are counter to the culture. 
and even counter to what I normally would want in, in life. And I think it's in those realities that our testimony becomes real before others. Doesn't it? You know, we're always tested with, are we going to do things God's way or my way? The world's way or, or God's way? And at these times, we need to be willing to consider these words and say, have we always obeyed? Not only when people are looking, but when they're not. Because that's really our heart's desire. So that if someone drives up the driveway and drops in, drops in on you, there'll be nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing you're trying to hide. Because there's a reality. And it's not that we're perfect. You know, we all grow together, fail together, get restored together, and keep growing together. And there's a Christian life. But I'm talking about the desire of our hearts to apply God's word to every reality in my life. This, there's kind of a much more urgency here, isn't there, in these things. In fact, I think in verse 15, when it goes on, we'll get to later, where he says, when you shine as lights in the world, I was reminded of the fact that God, Jesus told us not to put a bat, bushel basket over our lights. And hypocrisy, a lack of reality, of disregard of God's word in my daily life does just that. It dims the testimony. You shine brightly when you make those decisions. It's not like we're looking for ways to be different than everybody else. We're just willing to follow the Lord, whatever that involves. We're going to be faithful to God's word. I don't care if, if I used to do it a different way for the last 50 years. I can say that because I'm old enough to say that. Or if the culture does it a different way or if the church does it a different way. This is what God says. This is what I'm doing. That's the kind of attitude Paul's looking for here, and that's what shines brightly in the world around us. And having that much more urgency will affect every area of our life that will distinguish us from the rest of the world in our lives, doesn't it? Let's turn to Luke chapter 6. I couldn't help but think of this. Luke chapter 6, if you would, where Christ addressed this in a, in, in a wonderful way. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This is the one specific application, but I think we'll get the point here. Verse 27, but I say to you who, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also, and from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you and, and from him who takes away your goods. Do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners who receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. That's reality. Now, some, we recognize this passage has kingdom implications, but this it lays forth the principles of grace that God wants to make real in his life. You know, unbelievers go to church, unbelievers give money, unbelievers are generous, However, going back to Philippians 2, the distinction God wants to make in our life is are we willing to, to always, always obey, always submit 
to the teachings of God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, much more, even more important. You know why? Because it's easy to do right when we're in a Christian crowd. The challenges come when we're all by ourselves. Are we willing to rely upon the power of God, the grace of God, as we seek to follow the word of God? Much more. There's an urgency um, here in this passage for believers to step up and live real, to be what they say they are, to follow God's word implicitly. And you know, that's always going to create a cost or a risk from our perspective. It's always going to seem to cost us something or present a risk to us, and inconvenience, but that's where we trust the Lord. That if he, he moves us in a certain direction, that he's going to take care of the details. Those things that, we're at, that may we may think create a cost or a risk. Because he's able, and we can trust him in it. He goes on to say here then, in the last part of this verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now at first glance, this some would think that because it mentions the word salvation that it, that it is saying that good works contribute to our salvation, that helps us to obtain salvation. But as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that's not true, don't we? Because first of all, the Bible is consistent within itself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 4, 5, But to him that works not, but believes on him who who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. We understand that, the, that God, the gift of salvation is a free gift. That's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved love. That means we don't merit it by our works. We don't earn God's favor by what we do. We understand salvation is that gift because, because God resolved man's problem. What was man's problem before God? Well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2.1 says that to the, to the believers in Ephesus, you have you made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Man's problem is that we're born into this life dead to God because of sin. We're separated from God. And that sin is, has destined us for an eternal destiny in a lake of fire. But God intervened, didn't he? And that's why later in Ephesians 2, after telling the saints you at one time you were dead in sins, he says later in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we are dead in sins, he has saved us through Christ. But God, what a wonderful three-letter word. But God. He intervened. He took upon him the sins of us all. And when you consider salvation, you recognize that there is a problem that needs to be resolved. And it's salvation is not about <clears throat> me committing anything to God, giving anything to God. It's not about what I can do for God. Salvation is about what God has done for you. Salvation is about the free gift of eternal life that God extends to us through Jesus Christ. That's the issue at hand, and we need to keep it that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved, and thou shalt be saved. Consider the book of John and all the verses that refer to the salvation alone by faith. Because Jesus himself bore our sins. He resolved that problem. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself? He himself. I always like that when you use a pronoun with himself. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. 
He says, nothing we can add to the cross work of Christ. Sins are paid for once and for all forever. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. That means a satisfactory payment. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That sin debt has been paid once and for all and forever, and God extends to you and I salvation freely. Romans 5.1, we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the book of John uses that concept of faith or belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the means by which we appropriate salvation by faith alone. That's why Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It's Christ alone who saves. Salvation is a free gift given in grace, received by faith apart from works. That's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for, for the forgiveness of sins. So we know here in Philippians 2, this is not talking about eternal salvation. It actually is referring to what you could call phase 2 salvation. And you might say, what do I mean by that? Well, in the scriptures, you see salvation coming in phases or tenses, however you prefer to put it. And the first phase is the fact that we need deliverance, rescue, salvation from hell. And that was accomplished by Jesus Christ, and we enter into that by faith, trusting Jesus as our Savior. But we're also told in Galatians 1 verse 4, where it says of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. He's also delivering us from the evil in this age or in this world system is the idea. From this world around us, there is deliverance for you and I from the clutches of sin in our lives. That's what we call sanctification, second phase salvation, in which God is working in us to deliver us from the, from the habitual enslaving power of sin in our lives. It's called victorious living. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. That's the second phase, salvation. God is seeking to deliver you and I. And that's why, and that's the struggle of the Christian life, isn't it? To learn to live victorious over sin. To, to resist the lust of self. And we have that whole dynamic set forth in Romans chapter 6 of our identification with Christ on the cross, in which we're no longer to yield our members as, to, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but instead yield ourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. That's Christian living, victorious living. That's deliverance, salvation from sin and self in this present life. Third phase, if you might be wondering, just for mentioned, Romans 13, 11 says this, and do this knowing that the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Well, that's not talking to the salvation in the past. It said it's nearer than when we first believed. That's referring, that's referring to eternity, isn't it? And the older we get, and I look in the mirror, and I wonder who that old guy is, you realize you're a day closer to eternity. Whether by death or by rapture, our salvation is nearer. The ultimate fulfillment, you might call it ultimate sanctification, if you want to put it in that term, when we are with the Lord forever. So here in Philippians 2, verse 12, he's not talking about obtaining salvation. He's ta talking about the outworking of salvation, the working out of what is already inside of us, of what we possess. That's why God addressed, that's why this reaches back to chapter 1, verse 6, where, where we saw that he who has begun a good work in us will perform it unto the day of Christ. That's what this is referring to, the good work that God has begun in us as God's children. 
he writes this book in, in verse 1 of chapter 1 to the saints in Christ Jesus, those who are sanctified, those who are Christians. And God has begun a good work in all of us. And it is that work he's referring to here. And that's why he calls them here in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, he calls them children of God, lights in a sin-darkened world. And so he's talking about that work of sanctification, that work of making us Christ-like, the work of, of helping us be real. That's what he's talking about. Growth in the Christian life. And the point really here is, is the fact that something we're to work at, work out, put some effort to, give it some attention. You make your walk with Christ a focus in life. You know, anything in life we pursue, we have to invest ourselves, don't we, if we want to get better at it. You know, I like to deer hunt a little bit, but I don't shoot my bow nearly often enough, and then when I get out and have something to shoot at, I wonder why I miss the thing by, by 10 yards. You know, I don't, pra I don't practice enough. I know that. And uh, that's why the deer don't run when they see me. <laughs> because I don't invest myself enough in it like many do. And anything we enter into, if we want to improve at it, we, we invest ourselves. We practice. You know, that's why football season starts off with two-a-days and, you know, and, and so on. We, we invest ourselves, whether you're a musician whether, you're in, whether you have a, 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 whatever skill you might have in business, the more we, more we study, the more we invest, the, the, the better we become. And that's what this is talking about. How many Christians will invest their, their time in all kinds of pursuits? But what about this one? Our primary pursuit. Are we investing ourselves? Are we giving it our attention and effort? Are we making our faith relationship with Jesus a priority in our lives? Are we putting effort into knowing God and knowing his word and living it out in our lives? Now we know it's by grace alone that this is accomplished. That's why the next verse tells us it's God who works in you. We know it's God ultimately who, by his grace, provides the teaching and, and, and the energy and the effort. It's by his power we live. But there are some disciplines that God has given us to help to that, that we are to enter into in order to cooperate with God's work in us. The most obvious one is Bible study, isn't it? Whether public or private. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere, pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. There's desire. And, you know, I've had six children, and some of them, as soon as they're born, they know what it means to eat. There's no treating or training, but some of you have to train them a little bit, don't you? To, to, to begin to feed and begin to eat. And that's what God's saying here. Enter into that discipline of feeding on the Word. Desire it. And the more you desire, the more you want to go back. You know, we all have our favorite restaurants. I have one particular one in, down in Jacksonville where my daughter lives, and when we go back there, I can't wait to get there. It's almost like I don't even want to go straight to their house. I want to meet at this restaurant. Because they, have, uh, they, they cook shrimp like no one else has ever cooked shrimp. And, and it's just a, it's a, it's a delicious dish, and I won't because... I won't advertise for them. You can ask me later, but you know, what is it? I've tasted and saw that their shrimp is delicious. And God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Develop that appetite. It's a discipline we are to enter into so that God may whet, whet our appetite for more and more and more. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, the man, as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another, and so much the more. There's that urgency again as you see the day approaching. Now, we also do that in the public setting, don't we? Ephesians 4.15 tells the church this, but speak the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Bible study, private, personal, and public is essential according to God's word for us to grow, to, to allow God to accomplish his work. We have to expose ourselves to the truth. And that should be pretty simple because when we're saved, you know, our, our heads and our hearts and our minds are filled with all kinds of worldly perspectives. And growing in, God, in, in, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of allowing God to accomplish this work of working in us is, begins with exposing ourselves to the truth, the truth that sets us free, the truth that sanctifies us, the truth that teaches and trains us. And so we learn God's word in our private study, in our public learning. You know, I couldn't help but think of Romans 10 where it says, you know, how can I hear without a preacher? Well, the pastor's international version says this, how can they preach without a hearer? By the way, I'm just kidding. There's no version like that. That's just a pastor's perspective. How can they preach if there's no one sitting out here? And, that's, and that's, what God, that's the point of God's word. We need to feed on God's word. First of all, it's a discipline that we enter into. Hearing God's word is a priority. Reading it and studying it becomes important in our lives. Another thing we, we recognize, a discipline that goes along with that, is meditation on God's word. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of meditation that's become popular, the East, that rises out of Eastern mysticism that comes from yogas and the yogis and, and, all, and the New Age movement which is all about emptying your mind, which is a dangerous thing, by the way. Even the yogis warn you about that, just emptying your mind so there's nothing in there. Well, for some of you, it might be easier than others. <laughs> but it's a dangerous thing because Satan will gladly fill it. Instead, meditation is filling your mind and allowing the good stuff to push out the bad stuff. That's biblical meditation. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 says, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. Meditate. This book of the law is what they had of the Bible in those days, the first five books of the Bible. Meditate in day and night. Then, you can make your way prosperous. Then you can have good success. Then you can observe to do it, and so on. Meditation on God's Word, important. It goes along with Bible study, but that's why sometimes throughout the day, sometimes you might learn a thought from your devotions, read a verse, take something home on a Sunday. Write it down. Make a note. Noodle on it while you're in the car. Turn off those tunes that talk about the world's perspective towards everything and fill your mind with the things of God. That's what it says. Because even the world recognizes that our minds are like a computer. Like the old song said, input, output, what goes into it must come out of it. Meditate. Fill your minds with the things of God. Another aspect of a discipline, another discipline that God mentions in the Word that, that is a tool that God uses to develop us in His work of making us Christ-like is faith, submissive obedience to God's Word. Start applying it. Hebrews 5, verse 14 says this, but solid food referring to the deep things of God, the mature things of God. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use 
have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil by reason of use. They practiced applying the word of God. And God says, what happens? You move from milk to meat when that happens, you, when you begin to use the word of God. So it's not enough just to study the, the, and understand the, hist the history of the Bible and the te technicalities of the Bible and all that goes with it. It says the way you become mature, full age, is by reason of use. You start living it. Start applying it. Start praying, God, how can I apply these things to my life? And that's what God uses to grow us, is it not? And of course, we can't leave out prayer, another discipline. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come to the Lord to ask the Lord, how do I live your word? Give me the grace when I'm in need. Give me the help. Help me to trust you and to, and to know how to apply your word, live your word in my daily life. Now, all these things, and there may be more you might want to add to the list, or maybe you want to subtract. I don't know what, which you might want to do. But all these require effort, focus, and priority in our lives. And that's exactly what this is saying here. If you want to be unhypocritical, if you want to be real, if you want to much more obey in private, then work at it. Put some effort into it. And again, it's not that we live the Christian life in our own strength, but there are disciplines that God expects us to enter into in order to grow, to know Him. It takes focus, doesn't it? Well, then it goes on to tell us here to do, do so with an attitude. Not an attitude like we sometimes think of an attitude, but this kind of attitude with fear and trembling. That's the kind of attitude. And don't we wish all of our kids had that? When we raise our kids. That when you say something, they, they, do, they obey with fear and trembling. <laughs> Show me a kid like that. You know, the word, I think one version translated reverence and awe. That's what the phrase depicts, fear and trembling. It's kind of a, a well-known phrase, fear and trembling, a phrase that we are familiar with. And uh, you may even use it as a father. Um, but it really means reverence and awe. Reverence of God and awe of his person. It might, and that really, you can't help but realize this connects back to the end of the last portion where it says in verse 9, God's exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He just told us about the awesomeness of our God. Jesus humbled himself to the point of the cross, and God's exalted him, and he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we should approach him with that kind of respect. I don't think, you know, the, you know, the smartest guy in the world put it in the most simplest way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It just is the beginning. It's the basis. It's the foundation to recognize who God is. And sad to say, the world, and, and, and at times Christianity is bought into the lie that you're the center of the universe. But God is. We know that's not true. God is. He's the almighty creator who transcends creation. And what he's saying here, it should be normal and natural and automatic if to, to invest in living the Christian life if we recognize our God recognize that we belong to him, that he is Lord of Lords. You see, some people think submission to the Lordship of Christ in our daily walk is, is a demeaning thing. That's how the world would see it. Well, I don't submit to anybody when I hear that. But they don't realize it's the most delightful thing because God always has our best in view. 
He knows how to lead us in a way that will bring great delight to our lives. And so we're to, we're, to, we're to approach him and his work of working in us in that deep respect for Jesus and his word. In awe of God. And I hope you, as you open the pages of scripture, what leaps, leaps out at you is the awesomeness of our God. Not only in his holiness and his truth, but in his great love and grace and loving kindness to undeserving me. What an awesome God we have. And that attitude will undermine, or excuse me, undergird, here we go again, undergird our pursuit of the Savior, won't it? Will motivate us to listen and obey his word because he is king, he is Lord. He knows what he's talking about. You see, the Bible is not an alternative way to live. And that's how some Christians view it. Yeah, you know, if, you know if, uh, take it if I like it, leave it if I don't. It is the way to live. Because it's the way that our designer, our creator, our loving Heavenly Father has laid out for us. In our scripture reading, that wonderful passage that talks about all the effects of the delightful word of God in our lives, that ends with, in keeping of them, there is great reward. That's what our Father has for us. So it's not subservience in the sense of being demeaned. It's a delight to, to, step, to walk in his ways because there is great reward. Well, he turns from the, our attitude then in verse 12 to verse 13 to our motivation. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's because God is at work in us to help us to work out our salvation. He is at work in us. That's like a wow, really. That's a wow moment. God is at work in me? I mean, yeah, we acknowledge the principle to realize that he really is involved with my life individually, that he's at work in me. He knows what, who, who I am, what my needs are, what my failures are, what my shortcomings are, and he wants to help lift me up. You know, God's not a God out to simply chase after us with a big stick because of our faults and flaws and failures. He's a loving father that would lift us up. And who better qualified? The one who, then one who knows our hearts, knows us intimately, one who designed us, made us for a special purpose, according to Psalm 139, isn't it? And so this four continues the thought, doesn't it? Four, it reaches back to this, this working out your salvation to clarifying the point that it's really God who, who is at work. He's the one who produces fruit in our lives. He is the one who accomplishes cha changes in our lives. And the challenge in this context is for us to simply participate with him. Take his hand and go along for the ride. Allow him to do that work in us. This maybe statement for it is God who works in you also maybe gives a little bit of, of an exclamation point to fear and trembling in the end of verse 12. Because it's God. That's why we approach it with awe and reverence. It's God at work in our lives. And we know that as a faithful father, he he teaches and trains us according to the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about how the Word of God not only corrects us, but it teaches us, it trains us. God's engaged in our lives. We know He sovereignly orchestrates our circumstances to grow us. The trials of our faith works patience, according to James chapter 1. And God works sovereignly over our circumstances to help us learn how to use the Word of God. We also know He disciplines us, according to Hebrews 12, when we get out of line. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And that's every son whom he receives. He then provides the power to produce the fruit of that teaching in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. Zechariah 4.6 says, 
So he answered and said to me, that this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So God teaches and trains us. He sovereignly works in our lives to help us to live it out. He provides the strength to produce the fruit. And along the way, disciplines us. God's at work. It's God who works in us. The word work here means to simply to enable or to energize. And it tells us what he's trying to accomplish in that work. The basic foundational things he's trying to accomplish here is to will and to do it for his good pleasure. To will means he wants to teach us to be willing, first of all. Secondly, to do his good pleasure, he wants us to learn to do his, good, his will in our lives. So he really wants us to be willing to do his will, pursue his will, to seek his face, to live his way. Kind of sounds like parenting, doesn't it? That's what we do with parents. We teach our kids what is right, and then we train and discipline them along the way to help them live it. That's what God's saying here. This is what he wants to accomplish. He wants to, if you want to put it this way, and some don't like this term, but he wants to break our wills. That is our independence, that is, from him, our self-will. He wants us to teach us to pursue his will in our lives. He wants us to live his way because he knows that's best for us. But too often we're like children. We're often self-willed and misdirected, thinking, thinking we know best, forgetting Father knows best. If I can steal that title, Father knows best. And we need to remember that. Let's turn to Isaiah 55 here, if you would, just maybe in closing. And we need to remember that if we reach back to the previous verse, that if we approach God with awe and reverence, remember who our God is, and he does know best. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 21, it says, God's wisdom is wiser than ours. Here in Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's salvation. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. And here's the effectiveness of the word of God. As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and, and do not return there, but water the earth and break it and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's ways are higher than ours, and that's, a good, that's what we need to remember. And really, when you consider this, this passage, we have to remember that it is not your place and mine to be the determiner of truth. And that's too often how we approach the Bible. Eh, you know, that's kind of, I, kind of like, I don't really like that passage, but I like this passage over here. Or sometimes we approach it with, you think, well, you know what, the Bible's kind of out of date, so I can apply it this way, but this passage, I think, is, you know, is... is not relevant to our culture, and I can disregard it. That's not our choice. God has given us a word that is eternal. It's living. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And we need to approach God's word. For back in Philippians chapter 2, if we're going to approach God with awe and reverence, fear and trembling, 
you might say, and, and if there is a little bit of trembling involved in our approach to God, the trembling should be in regards to the consequence of disregarding our God and his word. If maybe we should tremble if that's the case. Just like our kids tremble when mom says, wait till your dad gets home, kind of thing. And we should be afraid of that, the consequence, because we don't see down the road like our God does. That's why we trust him. That's why we follow him. That's why we implicitly follow his word, because he knows tomorrow. And we can trust him with it. And we approach him with that awe and reverence because our Father knows best. And that's why maybe the, the anchor verse of this passage is falling towards the end of it later on in verse 16 where it says, holding fast the word of life. That's where it begins, isn't it? Holding fast. Having that grip of determination upon the word of God so that we might be committed to living it in daily life. No matter the, what the challenge, no matter how hard the decision we're going we're gonna to hang on to the word of God. And along the way, we'll invest ourselves in the disciplines God has set before us so that we might cooperate with him. Because that's the question here. Will you cooperate with God? He's the one that works. Ultimately, this is a, p a passage about God's work in us and his challenges. Are we cooperating with him so that he might make us all that he intended us to be? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your grace, great grace towards us, Father. You have not only provided us salvation full and free, but you've provided for us a life to live, a glorious life, an abundant life, a Christ-like life, a life in which Christ lives in me. And Father, you are faithful as a father to pay attention to me, to each one of us individually, to give us what we need in the various, these various disciplines to grow us, to be like Christ. For in that place, we find the greatest reward. So apply these principles to our lives for your glory now we pray in Jesus' name.